Hey, Briefing listeners, it's Sonia. I wanted to share with you a new bonus series from our fellow FT podcast, Behind the Money. It's called Behind the Money Night School, and it'll serve as a guide to the U.S. economy in 2023. What you're about to hear is the first episode, and if you like what you hear, you can find more by subscribing to Behind the Money wherever you listen to podcasts. Hello, and welcome to Behind the Money Night School. I'm Peter Spiegel. I'm the U.S. Managing Editor of the Financial Times. BTM Night School is a special series made in collaboration with Blinkist that will serve as a guide to the U.S. economy in 2023. Over the next five weeks, I'll be joined by FT journalists for conversations around issues like inflation, technology, and energy. For your lesson tonight... Gasoline prices aren't just about what you put in your car. They're actually about the cost of your tomatoes or your clothes or anything that is shipped or trucked or made. Derek Brower, the Financial Times' U.S. energy editor, joins us. We'll cover a lot of ground, from gas prices to Joe Biden's green subsidies, domestic oil production, and the role of renewables. Hi, Derek. Hi, Peter. When most Americans think of the U.S. economy and energy, I think they probably think, first of all, of the pump going to fill up their their car with with gas. The interesting thing that we've seen over the last year or so is that we had the Russian invasion of Ukraine. The price of gas in the U.S. went to, in some places, over $5 a gallon. Uh, but now we've seen since that peak, it's actually come down quite a bit, dropped the nationwide average by about a dollar, dollar and a half. What's happened over the course of the last year? Good question. A lot of things happened in probably about six months. The first thing that happened was that the Biden administration got very, very worried. Uh, remember that they were facing midterm elections last year, and the run-up in gasoline prices was happening in the months ahead of those elections. So the administration became so worried that it began imploring foreign oil producers to pump more oil. It asked domestic shale producers to produce more oil. Those producers in Texas, New Mexico, North Dakota that have done so much over the past decade to produce so much oil for the U.S. and make the U.S. almost energy independent. And then the third thing it did on the supply side was open the taps of the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. And the Strategic Petroleum Reserve is this huge reserve of stored crude oil in caverns, salt caverns dotted around the Gulf of Mexico coast. And it has all this oil stored there for emergencies like hurricanes or civil wars in Libya and so on. And the US government tapped that, opened the taps, allowed some of that oil to come out, lots of that oil, in fact, and that drove prices prices down. So it was a political decision by the Biden administration, really, to get these prices down because it was conscious of just how significant for American voters, the gasoline price is. Now, that's a big policy change from the Biden administration. It actually came into office talking about renewables and not wanting to drill. But before I get to that topic, I just wanted to take a, a step back and talk about the broader U.S. economy, because obviously what hits consumers at the pump is important. But in the broader U.S. economy, obviously, we are a very energy intensive economy. And there was a lot of concerns of sort of the battle days of the 1970s and where we headed back to, you know, inflationary spirals and those kinds of things. The difference, I think, is that energy now accounts for a a far smaller part of the overall U.S. economy than it did back then. But obviously, high oil prices still have a huge impact on some of these energy-intensive industries like manufacturing. 
What has been the impact on sort of the broader U.S. economy and, and particularly the manufacturing sectors and consumer spending and, and those kinds of things? Yeah, I mean, this is a really, really complex and interesting topic, actually, because, you know, we're used to the, you know, hearing about the 1970s oil crises where soaring oil prices triggered economic recessions around the world and, and so on. That's not what happened last year when oil prices spiked again. And there's a lot of conflicting, interesting things that are kind of happening in the U.S. economy or have been happening over the over recent years. One of them is that, you know, people spend more on energy these days. In fact, last year, households spent more on energy than they ever had before. But they spend a lot less of their personal income. As a, as a share of their uh-huh. personal income, they spend a lot less. So the impact is lower. Now, gasoline prices are really visible to Americans. In a political sense, it's really important because it's a number that you see driving down the highway all the time. That's why political consultants say um, presidents are always so obsessed about um, gasoline prices because it's this visible sign of whether the economy is you know, growing or, 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 or um, shrinking or whether prices are going up or, or prices are going down. But the other thing to, to remember is that gasoline prices aren't just about what you put in your car. Diesel prices is the same thing. They're actually about the cost of your tomatoes or your clothes or anything that is shipped or trucked or made. So last year, the Biden administration was also contending with inflation across the economy that was running at four-decade highs. So, and underlying that was the the cost of energy, which was rising. So it's a very complex thing. We're, we're spending less in the U.S. economy as a proportion of our uh, household spending than we ever have on energy, but energy underlies all the other things that we're spending at the moment. It's, it's the, it increased the co- as oil prices rose last year after the Russia's invasion of, of Ukraine, uh, the cost of everything else rose too. And as there was all this money coursing through the economy because of all the stimulus spending during the pandemic, you know, that helped inflate these the, the, the cost of energy, the cost of everything else. So it was this really, really complex kind of vortex of forces that were uh, intermingling and, and affecting the price of everything in the economy. But the biggest single one of them was the cost of energy. And so it's most visible when you drive past the gas station. But obviously, if you're going to your supermarket, you're going to your clothes store, those things have to get to those locations on trucks, which are fueled by the same high prices that consumers were seeing. So it had a ripple effect. Yeah. One of the things you said in, in your opening remarks about the, the changes since the 1970s is that the U.S. actually has become, largely because of the sort of shale gas revolution, almost energy independent. It's gone from being one of the biggest importers of crude oil in the world to actually a net exporter. Talk a bit more about that. How did that happen? And what are the implications for the U.S. economy going forward? Yeah, this is the other huge part of this story is that the U.S. used to send a lot of money abroad just to buy oil it sends a lot less of that money abroad. So that's this this huge macroeconomic change. And that's been brought about by this surge in shale production. And from about 2005 onwards, oil and gas drillers, especially initially natural gas drillers, figured out a way to bust open these shales, which lie below large stretches of the US, and release trapped natural gas. And that caused a huge, huge surge, unprecedented surge in natural gas production. Which big drove, change in technology. Big change in technology. They used two techniques, one called hydraulic fracturing, blasting water and chemicals into these rocks to bust them open. And the other one was called horizontal drilling, where they would stick a drill into the ground, and then it would turn sideways and go for miles underground. 
horizontally. That unleashed this huge wave of natural gas supply. And then a few years later, from about 2011, they started doing the same for oil. And that was when it really became important for the U.S. economy. Because as, as I said, in the past, the U.S. was dependent. U.S., by, by the way, is by far the biggest consumer of oil in the world. Consumes about one in every five barrels of, of oil produced in the world. So the U.S., while its production was declining, was still increasing its, its demand for oil and so having to import more of it. And that often came from Saudi Arabia or from uh, you know, Russia or Venezuela, countries that the U.S. had rather uncomfortable relations with. Iran. Iran, Iran. Um, so when the shale revolution took off and all this oil supply was made available, the U.S. dependence on these other countries declined and it started exporting oil from about 2015. The other thing it did was made manufacturing much cheaper here. So it was, it was this huge transformation in, in the outlook for the U.S. economy, it gave it a competitive advantage, uh, and all came crashing down, by the way, in 2020 when oil supply, oil prices crashed and oil supply in the U.S. tumbled as well. But up until that point, the U.S. had, had emerged as, as the largest producer of natural gas, largest producer of oil in the world that took 10, 10 years to do it. So transformation. So that gets us into this, this back to this conversation about the Biden administration's energy policies, because you, that crash happened. You had the Biden administration coming in on probably the most green focused agenda of any administration. And I think that's fair to say, even compared to the old administration he was in with, with Barack Obama. So they come in on a, on a hardcore green agenda, a lot of rhetoric against the oil companies. And then, as you said, almost on a dime, you have the energy secretary flying to Houston uh, big energy conferences begging to reverse that crash. Let's start drilling again. Uh, we need gas. Talk to me a bit about that change and what went on within the Biden administration to, to, to advocate uh, a, totally a 180 on that one. Yeah, it's, it's pretty extraordinary. I mean, as you say, they, they entered office with grand plans to, to decarbonize really quickly. Biden talked about a transition away from oil. He, he promised no more new, you know, no new drilling, no new fracking. You know, these were big statements to make about an economy that had become so dependent on the oil and gas industry for a start, and one where consumption of oil hasn't really gone down for, I mean, it's been, been pretty stable, it hasn't gone down for years. So this was a big plan. And then $5 gasoline hit, and there was the midterms on the horizon, and they realized that if they wanted to stay in power, they needed to increase supply. And so there was a very, very, very significant pivot by the administration. The energy secretary went to Houston, delivered a speech telling oil and gas producers there that we we're in a time of war, they needed to produce more. But they went from promising to restrict fracking to asking for more fracking, issuing more permits, releasing more crude oil into the market. You know, this was all designed to drive down the cost of the fossil fuels that they had said they were going to eliminate from the U.S. economy. So this, the critics of this would say that this is evidence that the push for green was a failed policy. And you've heard this particularly from Republicans on the Hill, um, that there was this big push by the Democrats in particular to go green, that we were going to be insulated from an energy crisis, A, because of the domestic production we have now, but B, because, you know, renewables had become such a big part of the U.S. energy mix. Electric vehicles now were making up nearly 6% of all auto sales, which is, you know, still a relatively small percentage, but it was more than double in a year ago. And the critics would say, hey, look, the war shows that we have overhyped the green transition. 
deal with that criticism. Do you think they, they have a point on this one? I think it's somewhere in between because the US, the, the Biden administration was contending pretty quickly after it entered office with you know, several crises, many of which related to energy. There was the invasion of, of Ukraine by Russia. Before that, there was an inflation crisis that they needed to deal with. You know, Biden entered office with this idea that climate would be at the center of every decision that he made. But within a few months, energy security became at least as important as that. And climate was somewhat relegated, I think, as all these other crises emerged on on the, the, the radar for the Biden administration. So I don't think that means that they have pivoted away for good. In fact, when I ask them that, they say no. They say, in order to keep that idea of a transition to a cleaner economy going, we need to retain public support for it. And you can't retain public support for big policy shifts of this kind if gasoline prices are doubling or trebling, if there isn't security of energy supply and so on. So you guarantee the energy security now in order to tackle the climate security later. So I guess the biggest evidence they haven't pivoted away entirely from the green agenda is one could argue the most significant legislation that was passed in 2022, which was the Inflation Reduction Act, which actually was very much a green subsidies act, something of the order of $300 billion in green subsidies, mostly through through tax incentives. You've covered a lot of this since it, it passed. Talk a bit about that piece of legislation and what impact you think it will have on the U.S. economy going forward. Yeah, this is, I mean, this is absolutely the proof of the Biden administration's ambition on climate and clean energy still. The Inflation Reduction Act is by far the biggest piece of climate-related or clean energy-related legislation ever passed in American history, and that means in, in Western history as well. What it purports to do, what it tries to do is stimulate investment in the supply side, i.e. clean energy supply, uh, supply of electric vehicles, and so on. And it does that through incredible tax credits, you know, tax credits that could wipe up to 65% of the cost of a project off for a, for a developer. And they some, in some, they're worth about $370 billion. So it's a huge, huge stimulus program for clean energy. And it will transform the American economy. It's already starting to transform the American economy. There's, the, the American economy is by far the most attractive place for clean energy developers now in the Western world. It's, it's out-competing Europe, which had taken this lead in clean energy and climate over the past couple of decades. It's opened up investment into green hydrogen. It's opened up the idea of capturing carbon, made that viable as a, as a way of um, sequestering this pollution. It's stimulating investment in batteries. It's everything. It's the full gamut. And it's, it's this sweeping legislation that really means if the investments happen as planned, the US will transform its energy system. Quite how long it will take is, is up for debate. Its ambition is to do it in, in the course of about 15 years. Uh, it probably won't happen that quickly. This is the kind of change that might have been seen in, in the 40s in the US uh, with the New Deal. But this is on that scale. It's one of those pieces of legislation whose, whose sheer scale uh, is, has been underestimated. And the more developers look at the tax credits available, the more, um, you know, the more capital that floods in, uh, the more you think, wow, this is, this is actually quite significant. All right, let's wrap up our conversation on this. The, the, if you have for listeners to sort of step back and have three takeaways on what they should think about in terms of the U.S. economy and energy, what, what would you say they are? 
I think first that the US has been rather insulated from a global energy crisis because it has so much of its own domestic oil and gas production. And the shortages in Europe were about, in particular, natural gas supply, which the US has in abundance. Second thing is that oil and gas still actually matters to this economy in the US. The Biden administration realized that very quickly, which is why it uh, pivoted to asking for more oil and gas from suppliers and releasing its own stored um, crude oil stocks. That's the second thing. And then I think the third thing is that in spite of that, I guess, dose of reality that oil and gas is still important, the Biden administration is still super focused on what comes next. And what comes next is a clean energy transition that helps decarbonize the US economy and above all makes, I think in, from the Biden administration's point of view, makes them a leader in these supply chains or gives them control over the supply chains for clean energy and makes the US economy resilient in the 21st century or the second half of the 21st century. The final point, I guess, is that the US is the world's preeminent energy superpower. It's the biggest producer of oil, it's the biggest producer of natural gas, and it's taken the lead in clean energy too. Thanks again for listening. I'm Peter Spiegel. You can find more of Derek's reporting on FT.com. This episode was done in collaboration with Blinkist. If you want to find more about conversations and topics like this, check out the Blinkist app. This episode was produced by Zach St. Louis. Kofor Forez is our executive producer. Sound designed by Breen Turner and Sam Giovinco. Cheryl Brumley is our global head of audio. Thanks for listening. Class dismissed. 